It is my pleasure this morning to welcome our guest, Laura Barron. Um, just to share a little bit, Laura has been with the organization Jews for Jesus for close to 30 years, and her husband, Andrew, is the director for Jews for Jesus in Canada. And they have three children, and they live in Toronto. And this morning, she's going to lead us in the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And so this is going to be a meaningful and reflective time for each of us, I am sure. And so without going on for too long, let's give a warm welcome to Laura as she comes to share with us this morning. Thanks, Jordan. <laughs> Thanks. Shalom. Let's try that one more time, okay? <laughs> you have to know how to make a nice Jewish girl feel right at home. So when I say shalom, you have to give me a hearty shalom. Shalom. Okay, that's much better. <laughs> My name is Laura Barron, and I'm with the Jews for Jesus ministry. And today, on this very special day, that we remember what Jesus did for us, I want to share with you this special presentation called Christ in the Passover. Because if you see, if you were to ask any Jewish boy or girl who the hero of Passover is, after giving credit to the Lord, they're going to tell you Moses. And you see, that's true. But it's not quite the whole truth. Because if you were to ask any Jewish boy or girl who believes in Jesus, who the hero of Passover is, they're going to tell you Jesus. And some of you, how many of you were here last year when David Minsky shared this presentation? Okay, maybe about half of you. Some of you might still be wondering, what exactly does Jesus have to do with the Passover? Because Passover is Jewish, right? Well, so was Jesus. And not only did he celebrate this Passover meal every single year while he dwelt among us on the earth, I think that you'll find he's clearly pictured in the story of Passover as well as all these symbols of Passover. Because if you really think about it, the story of Passover is the story of our liberation from bondage. And the message of Passover is the promise of redemption. So this morning, as I share with you this traditional Passover setting, it's really my hope that you'll view it as more than just an explanation of a commemorative meal, but that you'll view it as I do, as an object lesson on the life and mission of the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sin of the world. Now look closely this morning, because if you do, I think you will find clearly pictured here his death, his resurrection, and the promise of his return. Now I'm going to read to you a few verses from the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, but as you uh, go into this Easter weekend, I encourage you um, to go on and read the whole chapter and maybe even through to the end of Luke. Luke chapter 22, verses 7, 8, and 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And in verse 13, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now the first day of Passover begins this seven day holiday called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during this time, Jewish people don't eat anything which contains any yeast or leaven. Well, why no leaven? Some of you may have noticed that frequently throughout the scriptures, leaven is used as a symbol of sin. As you know, in ancient times, just a small piece of leaven was used to ferment the entire portion of dough. And as you know, it's the leaven which causes the dough to rise or to become puffed up, just as sin causes us to become puffed up in our own eyes. So for this time, we don't eat anything which has any leaven, as a way of saying that we want to break that daily sin cycle in our own lives. So in many Jewish homes, for six weeks prior to the Passover, which would be happening right now, the house undergoes a complete spring cleaning. We would remove any cakes, any cereals, any cookies, any biscuits, anything that has any leaven in it. Now this usually is the work of the woman of the house. But did you notice that Luke said Jesus sent two men to prepare the Passover? Now, perhaps this is because in Judaism, it's usually the man who has standing before God, not only when it comes to praying, 
but when it comes to ceremonial preparations as well. So if you really think about it, it should be the men who are doing all the cleaning for the six weeks. Don't you think, ladies? <laughs> oh, someone's clapping. <laughs> well, fortunately for you guys, our rabbis have come up with a solution to this tricky problem. <laughs> you see, they say true, the house has been cleansed because for the past six weeks, the woman has removed every single speck of leaven. But you see, not quite every speck. She's taken a few crumbs and she's hidden them someplace in the house and it's up to the man to find them. So, the night before Passover, the man comes home from work and he takes up some really strange-looking cleaning tools. A feather, a wooden spoon, and a white cloth. And he goes on what we call in Hebrew, berikat chametz, the search for the leaven. Now, where could those crumbs be? They could be anywhere. Maybe under the couch, maybe in the basement, maybe under the carpet, behind the fridge. They could be anywhere. But fortunately for him, his wife has been good enough to hide the crumbs the same place she hid them the year before. <laughs> so without too much difficulty, the man discovers those crumbs, and with a steady hand, he sweeps those crumbs into the spoon with the feather. This is heavy house cleaning, don't you think, ladies? <laughs> well, since these crumbs represent sin, the man is not permitted to touch them. Instead, he takes the whole bundle and he brings this down to a bonfire that's burning in the parking lot or the courtyard of the local synagogue. All the men of the community have gathered there and each one throws his bundle of leaven into the flames. Now, when I did this in Toronto, there was a firefighter in the congregation, and he said that his firehouse was in a very a Jewish neighborhood, and this was an extremely busy day for them. He was not kidding. <laughs> but if you see fire near a synagogue on the night of burning of the leaven, don't worry. Don't call the firemen. <laughs> well, so the house has been cleansed, right? <laughs> it's, and uh, just to be sure, the man adds one final prayer. May any manner of leaven which I've neither seen nor removed be considered null and void and dust of the earth. Amen. So the house has been cleansed. It's now ready for the Passover celebration. Some of you might remember from the book of Exodus chapter 12 that the Israelites were instructed to eat that first Passover meal with their loins girded, their staves in their hands, and their sandals on their feet. Why? They were ready to go out of the land of Egypt at a moment's notice. But you see, today at Passover, we relax and recline on pillows. Because in ancient Near Eastern societies, only people who were free were allowed to recline at dinner. People who were already redeemed. Also, the head of the household would wear special ceremonial garments. He would wear a white robe, which is called a kittle. Because in Judaism, white is the color which is worn by royalty. Some of you may have also noticed that Jewish men often cover their heads as a sign of respect before God. But today at Passover, instead of the usual yarmulke or skullcap, the head of the household wears something a little more elaborate. He's wearing white robes and the symbol of a crown. A crown. Because you see, today at Passover, the head of the household is a king. And as a king, he's going to lead his family through the traditional Passover Seder. Now, Seder is a Hebrew word, which means order. Because the Passover Seder follows the very specific order of events, which is recorded for us here in this book, which is called the Haggadah. The Haggadah, which in Hebrew literally means the telling, the telling of the story of Passover. Do any of the kids notice anything unusual about this book? Does this open the same way that your books at school open? Yes? Do you open your books at the back? You do? Wow. Okay. Well, usually most of us open the books here because in English we read from left to right, but in Hebrew it's right to left. Anyway, the book's in English as well. Well, it looks like everything's about ready. There is a traditional saying at Passover, let all who are hungry come and eat. Well, we don't have a huge Passover meal for you this morning, so you're going to have to really use your imagination. But the invitation still stands. Let's celebrate the Passover together. Now, the Passover begins with the lighting of the candles. And this usually is the duty and the honor of the woman of the house. 
Now, I don't want to start an argument, but maybe each of you has two candles on your table. Maybe the oldest woman at the table could light the candles. Okay, no arguments. <laughs> but uh, the most senior of the ladies at the table has the privilege and honor of lighting the candles. So let's light the candles together. <laughs> We're all sisters in Christ here, okay? I'm starting a fire up here. <laughs> you guys seem to be doing better down there. Let's try the other one first. There must be a fan right above me. Okay, I'm the last one. That doesn't usually happen. Woo! <laughs> there we go. Okay, looks like you're all done. After lighting the candles, she recites a traditional Hebrew blessing. You don't have to do the Hebrew part, okay? Baruch Pesach. <laughs> I'll explain in English. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us and commanded us to light the Passover candles. Now it is significant for us that a woman lights these candles because our Messiah, who's called the light of the world, was promised to us not by seed of man, but by seed of woman and by the will of God. Just as the prophet Isaiah foretold, behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. Remember, she would call his name Emmanuel. He would be a light to light the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. Now, Passover isn't just a meal. It is a banquet. And it isn't just a service. It's a celebration. And whereas a meal or a service might only take an hour or two, this Passover Seder can take up to four long hours. Do not get worried. You all look extremely worried. We will not be here for four hours this morning. But during this time, each adult who's sitting at the table is going to drink and refill his cup four times. Now, the first cup is called the Kiddush cup, or the cup of sanctification. The second cup is the cup of plagues, the cup of plagues. Now, in between the second and the third cup is the time when the big Passover meal is served, and the cup which is taken after supper is the focal point of the entire ceremony. This is the cup of blessing, or the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup is the cup of Hallel, or the cup of praise. But it's with the first cup, the Kiddush cup, that the host offers a blessing for the rest of the evening to follow. So you have a little bit of wine, symbolic uh, grape juice at each table. If you could each fill your cups now, we will partake of the first cup together, the Kiddush cup. And you can just take a symbolic sip. You don't have to drink the whole cup. <laughs> I don't think we have refills on the juice. That could have been bad. <laughs> we lost the candle down there. When you're done, why don't you hold that Kiddush cup up with me, the cup of sanctification, so I know you're with me. Baruch HaTadonai Eloheinu Melech HaLam Borei Pri HaGafen Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. Amen. You can have a sip of the Kiddush cup. Now this service has begun. At this point, the youngest child who's sitting around the table will step forward, and he or she will ask the traditional four questions. Now these questions are recorded for us here in the Haggadah, and the first one goes like this. Ma nishdana ha-layla ha-zay mi-kol ha-lelot. 
which means why is this night different from all other nights? Well, why is this night different from all other nights? Those of us who know the story of Passover, we're obligated to respond. We would say, this is because of what the Lord has done for us. When he redeemed us, when he brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You see, redemption, it will come up over and over and over again. Redemption is really at the very heart of Passover. But Passover tells us more than just God's message of redemption. It tells us about God's means of redemption as well, through the sacrifice of Passover lambs. You remember the Israelites were instructed to take a whole spotless lamb and roast it without breaking any of its bones. And then they were to take the blood of those lambs and apply it to the doorposts of their home, first to the top and then to the two sides. Now, because of their obedience to God's command, they were spared that tenth plague that fell on the land of Egypt. You remember when the angel of death saw the blood on the doorposts of their homes, he was forced to pass over the houses of Israel. And that's where we get the name Passover. In Hebrew, the word is Pesach, the time which commemorated when death literally passed over the houses of Israel because of the blood the blood of the lamb. Really, what a mighty act of redemption. But still, what a picture for us today, isn't it, of an even greater redemption that was to come through the sacrifice of another spotless Passover lamb. You see, just as none of the bones of those first Passover lambs were broken, so too not one of Jesus' bones was broken in his death. And just as the Israelites had to apply in faith the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of their homes, so too must we, each and every one of us, apply in faith the blood of Jesus to the doorposts of our hearts. Now the child steps forward and asks a second question. Why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? And we would respond, this is because our ancestors, in their haste to leave Egypt, had to leave while their bread was still flat. Now this is what we call a matzah tosh. A matzah tosh. It's a pouch containing three layers of matzah, or unleavened bread, and each is separated by a small piece of cloth. Now at this point in the service, the father removes the middle layer of matzah, recites a blessing, and breaks it in two. He sets one half aside, and the other half, he gives a very special name. He calls this the Afi Komen. The Afi Komen. Try saying that with me. Afi Komen. Good, you all speak Greek. <laughs> Afi Komen is actually a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. And it literally means dessert or that which comes after. And the father does a strange thing with Afi Komen at this point. He takes it and he wraps it in a white cloth and then he buries it. It's hidden from view, but later on the service cannot continue until one of the children finds the afikomen and brings it back to the father where he redeems it at a price. Now I remember when we did this in our home, my, uh, my brother's son, my nephew, found the afikomen. He brought it back to my brother and asked for a puppy. He didn't get a puppy, so he tried for a bicycle, didn't get a bike, he got $5. <laughs> But now the child steps forward and asks those final two questions. Why on this night do we eat only bitter herbs? And why do we dip in salt water twice? Now I'm going to explain by showing you this. This is what we call a salachat shel pesach. It's a Passover plate. And despite its appearance, it's not used for deviled eggs. A symbolic piece of food from the Passover meal is placed in each one of these compartments. And each one will literally paint the portrait of redemption for us. So all of you have some samples of these foods on your table. The first piece of food is called karpas, or greens. Usually we take parsley or lettuce. And these greens, they represent life. So each of you can take one sprig of parsley and hold it up when you're done. Before we can eat these greens, which represent springtime in life, 
were commanded to dip them into salt water, which represents the tears of life. You see, this food serves to remind us that a life without redemption is simply a life immersed in tears. So each of you can take your karpas and dip it in the salt water and eat it together and remember that a life without redemption is a life immersed in tears. Believe me, at this point, typically in a regular Passover Seder, you would be starving and this tastes delicious, like the most expensive hors d'oeuvre. You've been reading for a long time already. This is what we call chatzeret. Chatzeret. Usually we take an onion or a horseradish root. Don't worry, you don't have an onion on your table. You don't need to take a bite of a raw onion. This food simply serves to remind us that the root of life is bitter, as it certainly was for the Israelites while they were in bondage and slavery to Pharaoh. And this is what we call maror. Maror. It's the root of the bitter herb itself. It's typically freshly ground horseradish. Now, the Haggadah tells us that each one of us sitting around the table must eat a tablespoonful of horseradish. You know what happens when you eat a tablespoon of fresh grated horseradish? It's like mistaking wasabi for green tea ice cream. You cry, right? <laughs> you have no choice in the matter. It's a battle between the horseradish and your sinuses, and the horseradish always wins. We call this a Jewish dristan. <laughs> but there is a serious side to the tears. The tears serve to remind us how bitter life is without what? Redemption. Right, you've got it. I'm going to hang on for a minute and show you something that we traditionally do so each of you are spared from eating a tablespoonful of horseradish. I have a little trick that we do. <laughs> now the next item on the plate is called haroset. Haroset. Usually we take chopped apple, honey, nuts and raisins and we mix it into a paste. And this food serves to remind us of the mortar the cement that the Israelites used while making bricks for Pharaoh. And the question might naturally come up, why are we using such a sweet, such a delicious mixture to represent such a bitter labor, such a bitter toil? Well, the Haggadah tells us that even the bitterest of labor is sweetened with the promise of redemption, right. Okay, so what you can do now is take a piece of your matzah put a little bit of the maror on there, take another piece, put a little bit of the haroset on there, and make a sandwich out of it. And that will represent the bricks that the Israelites used, uh, made for Pharaoh while they were in slavery, and you get the sweetness of the promise of redemption mixed in with the bitterness of slavery. We call it a korach, or a sandwich. It doesn't have to look like a perfect brick. I actually like the flavor of this. And you do have creamed horseradish, so you should all be fine. <laughs> once you've made your sandwich, you can, once you've made your brick, you can go ahead and eat it. <laughs> I don't see any gagging. That's all a good sign. <laughs> Maybe some of you didn't have breakfast. <laughs> Nod your head if you think this is an okay flavor. It's not the main point, but <laughs> looks like all of you are doing just fine. Now the next item on the plate is what we call a chagiga, a chagiga. It's not an Easter egg. Before the service, we take a white egg and we roast it until it turns brown. You see, chagiga was the name given to those special sacrifices that were made in the temple at Passover time. So at this point in the service, we slice the egg open, we pass a piece to each person sitting at the table, where they then dip it into the salt water, which represents what? 
Tears, right. You see, the Chagiga is a symbol of grief to our pre people, grief over the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD. But also contained within the egg is a symbol of hope and the promise of new life. So now you can take a piece of egg at the table, someone's suffering from some horseradish over there, I see, <laughs> and uh, pass the salt water around and go ahead and dip it into the salt water, showing your grief over the destruction of the second temple, but also the hope of new life. Eggs always need a bit of salt, so this works well. <laughs> Now the final item on the plate is the strangest one of all. It's not a piece of food, it's a bone, the zaroa, a shank bone of a lamb. Now Passover is often called the feast of the Passover lamb, but today at Passover, no lamb is served because the lamb that was eaten were those special sacrifices that were made in the temple at Passover time. And as I said, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and along with it, the altar on which the sacrifices were made. So really, the presence of these final two items on the plate are there simply to serve to remind us of sacrifices which are no longer made. And the question might naturally come up, with no temple, with no altar, with no sacrifices to be made on our behalf, how is atonement possible? Because the law of Moses clearly states in the book of Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 11, when God speaks through Moses and says, I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of life which makes for atonement. And many people might say, perhaps that was relevant 2,000 years ago, but it couldn't have any bearing on our lives today, could it? Well, couldn't it? Why does the Haggadah instruct us that each one of us sitting around the table at Passover must take the story of Passover personally, as if each and every one of us was being redeemed out of the land of Egypt personally? I think we need to take the story of Passover personally because each and every one of us needs to be redeemed personally. But with no temple, with no altar, with no sacrifices to be made on our behalf, how is redemption possible? With no lamb of God, how? Well, once nearly 2,000 years ago, there lived a man named Yochanan, Yochanan Hamatbil. You might know him better as John, John the Baptist. And one day, while he was baptizing in the Jordan River, his gaze fell on another Jewish man. And you remember what he cried? Behold the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's how. Not through the sacrifice of Passover lambs, but through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. Now it's time to drink from the second cup, the cup of plagues, the cup of plagues. Now in Jewish tradition, a full cup represents complete joy. In fact, if you go to a Jewish home, they will put a saucer under the cup and they will keep pouring it until it flows over the edge. You may have read about that in the Psalms. Your cup should be filled to overflowing. But you see, at this point in the service, our joy is not complete. So before we drink of it, we're gonna pour out some of the contents of the cup 10 times as a way of remembering those 10 plagues that were poured out upon the land of Egypt. We mourn their loss. We express sorrow over the destruction of the Egyptians. So we drink from a diminished cup of joy. So what you can do is take that um, cup. I don't think you have a plate on your table, but you can symbolically put your pinky in and take out some of the contents of the cup 10 times as a way of remembering those 10 plagues. And what we'll do is I'll say each plague and you can say it after me as we do this together. You don't need to make a mess of the tablecloths, you can just symbolically do this, okay? Blood, you can say after me. Frogs, lice, swarms of insects, 
cattle disease, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, slaying of the firstborn. And that's all before you eat dinner. <laughs> so go ahead and you can drink from your diminished cup of joy. I think there is an important lesson in the cup of plagues for us as believers. I think Pharaoh defied the will of God when he was repeatedly told by Moses what God wanted him to do, let my people go, and yet he refused. And because of his disobedience, death and destruction were poured out not only upon his, uh, his land, but upon his own home as well. He lost his own son due to his hardness of heart. So if I can give you just one little piece of advice, if God is telling you to do something, just do it, okay? But as I said, really, Passover is a night of rejoicing, and it's a night of thanksgiving, and it's a night to praise God. And today at Passover, we really can praise God, can't we? The angel of death really did pass over the houses of Israel. And we can praise God because the Israelites, they really were redeemed out of the land of Egypt. But more importantly, we can praise God because those of us who know him, those of us who are gathered here this morning, can realize that we have passed over literally from death unto life. Amen? This is a time I'm supposed to serve you the big Passover meal. But instead, I'm just going to take a short break and tell you a little bit about the ministry of Jews for Jesus. Because I have to confess to you, a lot of times I tell people I work with Jews for Jesus, and they look at me like I'm utterly confused. <laughs> they say, Lord, Jews for Jesus? That doesn't make any sense at all. That's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. It's like saying vegetarians for Big Macs or something. <laughs> But if you really think about it, all the first followers of Jesus were Jewish, weren't they? All the writers of the New Testament were Jewish, with the possible exception of Luke. And he was a doctor, so he was probably Jewish, but <laughs> let's not forget that Jesus himself was Jewish. And if you think about it, the biggest problem we had in the first century wasn't Jews for Jesus, but Gentiles for Jesus. Do you remember that God had to tell Peter three times in a vision to go to the house of Cornelius, a Roman soldier, and tell him that he too could follow Jesus as his Messiah? Well, Peter finally got the message. He arrived at Cornelius' home. Cornelius received the word of God gladly, and then, oy vey, we had problems. <laughs> because now... Peter had to go back and tell all the other Jews for Jesus that now a Gentile wanted to follow Jesus too. We had to hold the very first church council meeting to decide on this burning issue of Gentiles for Jesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. But don't worry, we decided it was a good thing <laughs> that Jews and Gentiles could worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob together with that middle wall of partition broken down once and for all. And we decided it was such a good thing. We sent you some of our best missionaries. We sent you Paul and Silas, Barnabas and Timothy, and they did such a fantastic job that now there are more of you than there are of us. <laughs> so if you are curious about what we do at Jews for Jesus, we just get the gospel message back into the Jewish community and raise the banner that believing in Jesus is actually the most Jewish thing you can do. So we do that in a lot of ways. We do a lot more than speak in churches and educate Christians about the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. You might see us on the streets trying to engage people in conversation. Sometimes we pass out literature. They always have catchy titles like, Jesus made me kosher. Or, if being born hasn't given you much satisfaction, try being born again. And the point is to get people to just take a minute to stop to talk to us. And we get their name and contact information. And really the heart of our ministry is meeting with Jewish people one-on-one, -on -one, whether it's in their homes, whether it's in Starbucks, whether it's online, whether it's in a chat room. And with God's help, we open the scriptures with them and pray with them. And if they make a commitment of faith to follow Jesus as their Messiah, we plant them in good local congregations wherever they live. So that kind of, in a nutshell, is what we're about at Jews for Jesus. And my husband and I were actually the first permanent overseas missionaries of Jews for Jesus. We were all, always primarily only in the US and Canada. And now we're in 26 uh, cities and 14 countries and eight languages. 
And we went to Johannesburg, South Africa, and while we were going there, the Berlin Wall was coming down, and our ministry sort of exploded into the former Soviet Union, into the Ukraine, into Berlin, into Budapest, into Paris, France, into London, England, into Sydney, Australia. But the most encouraging work, I think you had David Minsky here with you last year. He serves with our largest branch, our fastest growing branch in Tel Aviv, Israel. So I'm just going to give you a break from my voice for a few minutes and show you a clip about our ministry in Israel. And then I'll be back with you and we'll continue. So we're on our way to Tel Aviv to visit with the Jews for Jesus team. We've talked a lot on this show about bringing the gospel to the Jews, sharing the gospel in Israel and, and so on and so forth. And today we're meeting with people who really do it professionally. And by professionally, I mean they've been doing it for decades. They're really good at it. So we're going to hear about why they do it, how they do it, and more importantly, get to see them in action on the streets of Tel Aviv and see what it really looks like to bring the gospel of Jesus in Israel in 2015 to the Jewish people. We met with Dan Sered, who's the Israel Director of Jews for Jesus. He oversees a team of evangelists who daily bring the gospel to Israeli society. It is a ministry we started in 1973 in San Francisco, California. Um, at the end of the Jesus movement and uh, a lot of those um, hippies that came to faith in the States um, as a part of the Jesus movement were, were Jewish people. A lot of the hippies were Jewish people and hence Jews for Jesus began. It's um, an evangelistic uh, ministry, a parachurch ministry if you will, um, that exists to make the messiahship of Jesus an unavoidable issue to our Jewish people worldwide. Let me ask you sort of an obvious question, an obvious answer possibly to you. Why does a Jew need to believe in Jesus? Well, first of all, everybody needs to believe in Jesus. It's very important for us to understand that Jesus is um, the Messiah of the world. Jesus came as the savior of everyone. Jewish people aren't different than Gentiles. There are people out there who say Jews don't need to believe in Jesus, and they say the reason is is because they've already got a covenant with God. They've, they've got a covenant that supersedes uh, Jesus, that supersedes you know, the need for that sacrifice. That is not true because um, that goes against the Bible. The Apostle Paul said, um, talking to Jewish people, said, um, you know, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. We met up with Eli Birenam, who's an old-time friend of mine. He's been running the Young Adults Outreach from the Moshe Rosen Center in southern Tel Aviv, which is trying to impact the neighborhood. So, you know, around the world, uh, religious places or people that, uh, places of faith are kind of used only for the those who believe. And we really want our space to reach out to the community, even for those that don't believe. Yes, we want to show them the light of, of Jesus, but we also want to bless their community in a way that we're present, because we're here for the long term. So we want to be able to show them that they can come in and use this space as their own and they get to meet um, people that believe in Jesus and hear a little bit more about it. Uh, I see the purpose of the center is twofold. One is to empower the next generation of Jewish believers to be bold, about, uh, bold in their faith and to share their faith with their peers. And the second one is to really impact a cultural change in, in where culture is created. You know, this is the Cindy Center. This is where culture is created and we believe we can impact this culture for Jesus. Can you sort of... Uh lay out for us the different methods in which you try to get your message or our message to the Jewish yeah, people? Yeah. Here in Jews for Jesus Israel, we have kind of like, if you will, two methods of, um, of ministry of evangelism. We have the proclamation evangelism, which is, again, um, you know, taking our message to the streets, taking our message to the media, proclaiming the gospel for everyone to hear that um, this guy that you know is Yeshua, his real name is Yeshua, Jesus, and that he is Yeshua, that he brings salvation, if you will. That's, that's kind of our slogan. And then we have another, um, another approach, which is presence ministry. So we have proclamation ministry and presence ministry. In presence ministry, we have a presence where we want to serve this neighborhood. And we have this uh, facility named after our founder, Moish Rosen. And then, um, you know, we are hosting events here, if it's galleries or lectures. And through that, build relationships. It's all about people. 
and it's all about ministering to people. So through whatever methodology, our goal is always to, to serve and minister to that individual. We headed out with the Jews for Jesus team to see them in action on the streets of Tel Aviv, bringing the gospel to the people of Israel. You know what? People like to talk about this. They want to have these conversations and they say, yeah, yeah, it's interesting, tell me more about it. Uh, but of course there are some people that are on hurry and they don't have time to stop and talk. And there are, and there are some people who already made their mind with different prejudices, so they don't want to talk. There is a mix of people. You have the people who you know, are willing to take a flyer. You have people who are willing to stop and talk. You have people who are willing to give you their contact information. Then you have people who are willing to actually meet with you or have a conversation. And then, you know, you have people who are willing to look seriously into Yeshua, Jesus claims. And then you have the very few who open their hearts and give their lives to the Lord. There are many organizations and people in Israel who are promoting God's kingdom. And the brothers and sisters from Jews for Jesus have been at this for decades. Day in and out, they're sharing the gospel on the streets of Israel. And when you hear what they have to say, you can tell they mean business. They're serious about this. So when you pray and think about Israel, these are the people on the ground. These are the, the soldiers in the trenches who are fighting to promote God's kingdom in this land. So we're on our way to Tel Aviv. That again? So hopefully that gave you a better idea. We've been doing an outreach in Israel, a huge outreach called Operation Behold Your God since 2008. And our goal for that, I don't know if David showed you a video about that when he was here last year, but is to saturate all 12 regions of Israel with the gospel. And I've been privileged to be able to participate in most of that outreach, to go to Israel every year. I was in, there, uh, in Israel in September. We had an outreach in the region that uh, received the most um, battering from the conflict, not this past summer, but the summer before. And we actually had to reschedule our outreach because the Israeli army had asked us um, all people to not be on the beaches and in the market and all of that. So we postponed our outreach and we were able to go into that region and to tell people that there is true peace through the Messiah. That sign that we hold up, maybe it's not obvious to you how intense that is because we know the name of Jesus. It's him that we celebrate together today. But that sign says Yeshu equals Yeshua equals Yeshua, which literally means Yeshu, most Israelis, that's how they learn the name of Jesus. And it's actually an acronym that the rabbis have come up with that means may his name be blotted out. And that's what they learn in school. And New Testaments are not readily available in Israel in Hebrew. You could go online to get them, but it's not something that most Israelis are familiar with. So when I'm on the street there and I say, I believe in Jesus, they go, who? It's sort of like saying Jesus in Mexico. And then you say Yeshua, not Yeshu, because he brings Yeshua, which means salvation. So this, in many ways, Israel is an unreached country for the gospel. And the irony is, is that Israelis and Jewish people all over the world, in many ways, are an unreached people group. In Toronto, just at the end of last year, there was a woman named Bracha, and she contacted our ministry because she had begun to think that Jesus really was the Messiah, and she thought she was the only Jewish person who had ever thought about this before. And uh, she made a commitment of faith, and she's going to be baptized this month. So if you think of uh, someone to pray for here in Canada as well, think of her. Her husband's an atheist. She has three children under nine. And so she not only needs to grow in her faith, but to be a light to her family. At your table, you have four of these cards. There are more on the chairs if you need them. These are Jews for Jesus involvement cards. They're not pledge cards. This is your aerobic portion of the morning. This is all the exercise you get. Just take one and wave it at me. Show me that you have it. You can see it there. Good. Um, how many of you are actually getting our, uh, any communication at all from Jews for Jesus, whether it's paper form or email? Wow, like four of you. <laughs> We've got to change that here this morning. Um, just bend that car back and forth on the perforation and then tear this off. This is a part of the card for you to keep. 
We have taken the trouble to add this part of the card because this is the most important way that you can be involved with our ministry is through your prayers. I've given you a couple prayer requests already. Maybe you have a Jewish colleague, maybe a friend, a neighbor, someone you know. Why don't you start praying for that person? Let this card remind you to pray for them. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. That is the most important way you can be involved. This you can fill in, check the boxes off on both sides. A lot of times people say, well, how did you as a Jewish person come to believe in Jesus as, as, your, as your Messiah? If you put your email down there, I promise you before I leave Winnipeg, I will email you a three-minute YouTube version of my testimony, so I'll keep in touch with you. You don't have to give a gift to our ministry to receive communication from us, whether it's by email or if you want snail mail as well. I do encourage you to fill this in. I won't think it's rude if you write while I'm talking. Uh, you'll notice there is a place if you do want to give it a gift financially. I just need to explain to you that Jews for Jesus is not a church and we're not a substitute for one. And we firmly believe you need to support your church first. And if you give gifts to ministries like ours, it needs to be above and beyond your regular giving. But if you would like to give a gift, you can put it in the box as you leave afterwards. But whether or not you give a gift, do take a minute to drop that in there. I've also got some resources out there. I've got a whole series on the feast that goes into a lot more detail than I could possibly go this morning on the history of Passover, um, the culture surrounding Passover, how it was celebrated in Jesus' day, how it's celebrated today, and also some other feasts out there. It's really important for us as believers to know how Jesus related the feast to his plan of redemption. And I've got devotionals and DVDs and all that as well. The most important thing is that all of us somehow are involved in reaching out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Amen? Are you full? <laughs> if you're using your imagination, you should be stuffed by now. You've been eating for over an hour. I promise you at this point, you are really reclining. All the dishes have been cleared away, and now it's time for the third cup, the cup of redemption, the cup of blessing, the cup taken after supper, the focal point of the entire ceremony, but we can't go on. Do you remember earlier something was broken and then it was buried? Well, it now needs to be brought back before the service can continue. Do you remember what it was called, anyone? Wow, short-term memory. Well, yes, in English it was called dessert. <laughs> the afikomen, remember? The afikomen. That's why I had you say it with me. It's okay. One time I did this, someone yelled out it was the avocado. <laughs> it's now brought back to the Father where he unwraps it and he takes it and he breaks it again and again and again. He breaks it into many olive-sized pieces and this is taken along with the cup of redemption. Does this look familiar, brothers and sisters? This should. This is the origin of our communion service. It was at this meal that Jesus instituted that new covenant for us, giving his life for us, his body and his blood, so that we might be redeemed. And where else do we get a clearer picture of our Messiah than in that tradition of the afikomen, with the middle layer that's removed while the other two remained hidden from view? It's broken. It's wrapped in a white cloth, it's buried, and then it's brought back to the Father. I actually think it may have been the first century Jewish followers of Jesus who instituted the tradition of the Afikomen, and that could be why it's a Greek word and not a Hebrew word. But I think we can see him not only in the Afikomen, but in the matzah as well, which is unleavened. You remember, unleavening speaks of sinless nature. This is also a picture of Jesus for us. And you should know that for matzah to be found suitable for use at the Passover, our rabbis have laid down specific regulations concerning its appearance. First of all, it must be striped. Can you see that on your matzah on the table? This is a symbol for us. It's a picture. It's an image. Because Jesus was striped. Just as the prophet Isaiah foretold almost 700 years before he came, it would be by his stripes that we are healed. Also, to prevent that appearance of leavening or bubbling up, the matzah must be pierced. You see that through the flame. 
This is also a symbol for us, a picture, an image, because Jesus was pierced, wasn't he? Just as the prophet Zechariah foretold almost 600 years before he came, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. But we can see him not only in the matzah, but in the pouch as well. Remember, three layers of unleavened bread, each separated by a small piece of cloth. Now, there's been much disagreement amongst our rabbis concerning the meaning of this mysterious unity, this mysterious three-in-one. Some rabbis say, well, perhaps the unity of the matzotosh represents the unity of the three patriarchs of Israel, the unity of Abraham, the unity of Isaac, and the unity of Jacob. But why is that middle layer broken, buried, and then brought back? Nobody knows. Other rabbis say maybe the unity of the Matzatosh represents the unity of the three divisions of worship in the ancient kingdom, the unity of the priests, the Levites, and the children of Israel. But once again, why is the middle layer broken, buried, and then brought back? Nobody knows. But why even search for explanations? Why not just accept the explanation that's so clearly given in the design of the pouch itself? There are three layers there, yet they represent a unity, a triunity. And the Hebrew word, which may mean such a unity, is the Hebrew word echad, echad, which brings to mind the word of God spoken by Moses in Deuteronomy 6 when he cries out, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the word for one there is unity. You remember at that point in the service, the Father removes the middle layer of unity while the other two remain hidden from view. You remember in John's Gospel it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh. He became visible. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But to those who received him, he gave them the right to be called children of God. So we Jews who know the Messiah believe that the unity of the Masatosh represents the unity of one God revealed in three persons. I bet you could say this with me. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Why is the middle air broken, buried, and then brought back? Well, I believe because Jesus Christ, our blessed Redeemer, that which we celebrate today, he was broken, he was buried, and then brought back. This is my body, he said, which was broken for you, for you, for you, for you, for all of us. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. Now you can all eat a small piece of the bread before we partake of the cup of redemption. <laughs> 